right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so turn your, your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, Cindy will get you one. Go ahead and open your scriptures to Matthew chapter 5. So we are, uh, last week we started the Sermon on the Mount series, and uh, today we are starting the first one, which is Poverty of Spirit. Now if you've grown up in the church, um, you've probably uh, been taught the Beatitudes, um, and uh, our hope is that we never grow out of learning the Beatitudes. Uh, it's something that, uh, as we grow in Christ, it ought to convict us more and more. Um, the context, again, from last week, just a quick refresher. Uh, Jesus is starting to perform signs and miracles everywhere around Galilee. People are getting super excited. They're realizing this might be the one. This is the one who's going to set the new kingdom because uh, they're under oppression by the Romans. And so they, they ask and they inquire and they want to know what is his kingdom going to be like. And so then Jesus comes and he, he gives the Sermon on the Mount and uh, that some people call this the Constitution of the Kingdom. Basically, the culture. What is, when Jesus says of a culture, you know, we have American culture, we have Chinese culture, kingdoms. Like, what is God's kingdom going to be? And we pledge allegiance to this kind of kingdom above any other kingdom that we're part of. Um, but as we read Sermon on the Mount, and God, uh, Jesus lists out the things in the Sermon on the Mount, it should produce a cry in our hearts that goes, oh no, like, this is really hard. Like, this is really impossible to do. Uh, and without the grace of God, without Jesus himself, I need some sort of outside source beyond myself because this is difficult. And that was actually one of the mistakes of um, the Israelites, if you can make an argument for it, that as they travel through the desert and God gives them the laws, they, like, what is it, 300 some laws uh, based off the 10 laws of the 10 commandments, their response, some of them were like, okay, we can do this. Great, we can do this. And out of their own will and all their own um, humanism, they moved forward to try to accomplish all these laws, and it blinded them from their need for Christ. And in the same way, we don't want to make that same mistake. As we read the Sermon on the Mount, something in us should, instead of just being like, all right, this is what I'm going to do, check, 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 although that is the standard of the kingdom of God, it should produce a deeper heart cry that says, man, God, if I don't have you, like, I just can't do this. Like, I need, it's a supernatural power and ability. Um, so, uh, before we uh, get into the poor spirit, uh, I just wanted to quickly talk about, uh, well, here are the, the, the uh, eight Beatitudes right here, just kind of a refresher. Um, but I really wanted to touch base on the idea of grace, um, is not contrary to the Sermon on the Mount. Because there are some people who look at the Sermon on the Mount and um, and think like, man, I thought we were it was free, I thought salvation was free, I thought grace was free. Because, but the Sermon on the Mount uh, challenges our concept of freedom um, and what is free, because the Sermon on the Mount emphasizes every believer's responsibility to press into God. So the Sermon on the Mount emphasizes, hey, we as believers, you can't just sit back passively. Uh, God is not a slave that he would pamper you with, uh, you know, 
grapes and, and, and just ease of life, like there is a pressing in responsibility of every single believer. And when we get into Matthew 6, we'll see it. Prayer, fasting, giving, seeking. That these are all things that, the, the pursuit of righteousness that Jesus calls us to press into. And this challenges especially uh, the idea of false grace. This is a, this is a, teaching that is often prevalent and found in America, the idea of false grace, which is the idea that, you know, the grace of God is free, so, you know, God's going to love you and accept you no matter what you do and how you do it, or, you know, it's, it's fine, you can sin, you can be licentious, and there's grace, there's grace, there's grace. We hear that word, uh, misconceptions, and, and that misuse of that word, grace, and so I just wanted to touch base on that so we don't think that grace is contrary the Sermon on the Mount. Um, biblical grace in Titus 2, 11, 13 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God. This is the best definition I could find. Maybe I'll find some later, but best definition in the Bible that I could find of the terminology of grace. Um, and it's important for us to grab a hold of it because what is it saying grace actually is? It's the strength of God to train our hearts, to teach us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, meaning to give up what is bad, but also to give up what is not entirely bad, but just kind of worthless, <laughs> right? Like an Olympian will eat different and spend their time different and, and focus differently. They will give up many things for the pursuit of the prize. And that's what the Bible calls us as Christians, not just to give up what is bad, but the byproduct of love, the natural um, inclination of love is to also give up some technically good things for the sake of better things, right? So that is the grace of God, the strength of God that causes our hearts to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live godly lives. Like We know this because we realize we should love reading our Bible, we should love prayer, we should love certain things that God loves, but our heart is just, our emotions haven't met that place yet, our heart isn't there yet. And the grace of God is the strength of God to come in and supernaturally change our appetite to supernaturally change our desires. Many of you guys know this, uh, who used to love you know, certain types of music or watching certain types of movies. Suddenly, like as the grace of God matures in your life, you find they're not as appealing anymore. Right? Your appetite has changed. So renounce what's, what's bad and, and not so great, but to live godly lives and also to be excited for Jesus' return. That's what the grace of God does. It gives you strength to be excited for the day that he returns. Okay, so going back to that, that Sermon on the Mount is not contrary to grace. Sermon on the Mount and grace run in tandem with one another. As we pursue um, walking out what Jesus calls the Sermon on the Mount, the culture of Christianity, the culture of the kingdom, there should produce a heart cry, I can't do this, and then God's grace comes in and surrounds us and says, yeah, you can't, but I can't. And he conforms us into the likeness of Christ. So the Sermon on the Mount, why we're getting into this as well, is it is a litmus test. Um, a, a litmus test 
of our spiritual development and a litmus test of our ministry impact. Um, I remember when I was a grad student, um, we had to write this big paper and uh, spent like a good month writing this paper. And uh, we were gonna do a peer review first before we like turn it in. And so I give it to these three people and I remember this girl whips out a piece of paper and it's a rubric and I'm like, where did you get this? <laughs> like, I, I just had the prompt. I didn't know we had a rubric, right? And so she and her and these other people like start pairing my really long paper against this rubric that I didn't know existed. And oh, what's a rubric? Um, a rubric. Uh, okay, so it's when you're in school, like it it tells you, like, all right, this is what you're supposed to do, but the rubric tells you what you're going to be graded on, right? In the paper. A scoring guideline, thank you. It's a scoring guideline. And I remember my heart just sinking after like a month of intense work, and they're just tearing it apart, and they're like, you know, you, you totally missed the mark. Like, you, you weren't even supposed to focus on this thing, and <laughs> you did. And you, you, like, it really doesn't matter how long it was, and you thought it did, but like, it really doesn't matter. You know, all these things, and I realized I had to pretty much burn my entire paper and restart from scratch with this rubric. And I say this um, uh, because the mm of that, like, like, we can fall into that same mistake as Christians, yeah? Like, we look at, oftentimes, uh, our peers, you know, another church are sitting in these same seats, and we're like, well, at least we're better than them. We must be doing pretty well, you know? Like, we, we look at... Uh, just like we pick and choose parts of the Bible, just like I picked and chose certain parts that I wanted to write a paper on, and it missed the rubric. And that is what Sermon on the Mount is. It's a, out of God's tender love so that we would not miss the mark, so that we would not uh, have to rewrite, you know, from scratch. Like, this is what success looks like to God. Success in your spiritual growth, success in your ministry impact, and so it's so important for us to understand, to absorb, to meditate, to pray through the Sermon on the Mount so we don't miss it. Actually, Beck pointed out at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says a very wise word. He just says, anyone who does these things that I teach in the Sermon on the Mount, he's one who builds his house upon a rock. And when the wind comes and the storm comes, like the house will not fall. And uh, so what he's implying is that there are some, and arguably many, who will build a beautiful house on a sand, and God says how great that fall will be on that day, you know? And I can only imagine, because um, not, I don't know if any of you have experienced doing construction, but for the past, like, three years, we've been doing construction everywhere on this property. I mean, the amount of money we spent, you know, <laughs> like the amount of energy, weeping, gnashing of teeth, just building this thing um, and getting it up to code and, and making it nicer um, has been, you know, my dad worked super hard on it. I just imagine if one day it just crumbled, like if it just crumbled, how much we'd be like, oh man, oh man. And God in his kindness gives us this warning and says, Sermon on the Mount, pursue it teach others to pursue it, that you would be called great in the kingdom of God if you were to walk it out, and you were to teach others to walk it out. It's a firm foundation. It's reliable. Um, and the high point of Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 3, 4. 
part of the sermon it says, therefore, you must be perfect as your father, uh, as your heavenly father is perfect. And that one already should make you be like, uh, <laughs> like that's a pretty high standard, God. And we're, we're, you know, tempted to just be like, let's just ignore that verse right here because nobody's perfect. But we can't because it's the word of Jesus that we are called to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And like, I, I think that this is a relative concept. This is a concept that, that we are to walk in all the light that we have received, that God has given us. So even new believers can do this. Like the, the amount of light and revelation that God gives you, like, hey, you know, you should walk in this or you should put this aside. Whatever in that season God has given you, walk that out perfectly. And when you're done with that, later on as you mature, you're going to be like, ooh, I didn't know that that was a sin and that was a problem. And God highlights it to you and walked perfectly in that. Be obedient. Don't be disobedient. Be obedient and perfect in your obedience to whatever God gives you in that season of your life. So even new believers, if you're a new believer in this room, like you can do this. Okay? Um, and when you do, the promise of God is blessedness, happiness. That's what blessedness means, right? It means, uh, it means to be happy. It means to have a vibrant heart where we actually experience the, the feeling and the activity and, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, uh, so I'm going to actually skip a little bit forward. Here. So being, what is poor in spirit? That's the first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so what does it mean to be blessed in uh, a poor in spirit? So blessed, as we said, is happy. It's a vibrant heart. I mean, if you walked in Christianity long enough, you know it is difficult to sustain a vibrant heart. Heart that is alive, that isn't like, uh, I've heard this before, I know this, I'm pretty dull, you know, to it. Uh, lukewarm, cold, like God calls us, bless it. You're going to have a vibrant heart. You're going to have a happy heart if you walk out these eight Beatitudes. Being poor in spirit, um, just as a, in a nutshell, being poor in spirit, what that means is being aware of our great need. Being aware of our great need. Aware of how poor we are, how poverty-stricken our condition is, that we lack so much spiritually. Um, the context of this really is that Jesus has provided enormous spiritual wealth to each one of us. Because of the cross. And so he's saying, now respond to me. Jesus is saying, respond to me so that you can receive this wealth of grace. In your emotions, in your thinking, in your heart, in your ministry to others, you've got to press in to God. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going to help you do it. I'm going to help you do it, and I'm going to give you anointing beyond your natural ability to walk in the experiences that I have for you. And so being poor in spirit um, is just this grief, really, is, is seeing how available all that wealth is, but being completely aware of that huge gap, that huge gap between where we are and where God actually wants us to be. Aware of the deficiency 
And uh, there's like, you know, some people call it the difference between your legal position and your living condition, right? In your legal legal position, you know, like, I am a prince, I'm a princess, like, I have, you know, certain wealth, and, and God has promises. But in the daily life of the here and the now, you're like, my condition, like, my condition right now, it's not enough. This is not enough, God. And so, um, to kind of sum it up is, is, do you see your spiritual lack? Do you see your spiritual lack compared to what is made available to you? And more importantly is, if you see it, does it concern you? Does it bother you? That when we see our spiritual lack, uh, does it cause a certain grieving in our hearts? And does it concern you enough to take action? Uh, being poor in spirit implies taking action. Um, you know, I, I think of uh, when I was in middle school, uh, I don't know if you guys had this, but we had a, an eighth grade trip to Washington, D.C. If you're an eighth grader, you got to go to Washington, D.C. And it was this trip that all these middle schoolers were looking forward to. Every, every middle schooler from sixth grade, like, lock me for the day that I get to go to Washington, D.C., you know. And, uh, you know, there, there's always a few people I remember, because I, I grew up in Arlington, and it's a super wealthy, you know, community. Uh, but there would always be a few people whose parents were too poor that they couldn't go, right? So they would have to stay behind, and they would sit in this classroom uh, for a few days while all their peers and all their friends got to go to Washington, D.C. And I remember talking to one, one of them, the, overhearing, actually, a mother uh, talking about it and how she was like she saw the gap like every day she brought her kid to this really rich school and her kid had more tattered clothing uh, the lunch that she packed was was less awesome than the other kids and she would send her kid off to school every day around all these rich kids and she would see the poverty and it would cause just naturally of course mom like it would cause this poverty feeling right this feeling of lack this feeling of the gap. And it's interesting that, it's, that God calls us to carry and to experience that same heart as we see the gap between what God has in store for us and what God wants for us and where we are currently at. Uh, you know, American culture doesn't tell us to feel that. American culture is like, just ignore it, just like, whatever, like, count, like, da, da, da. But God says there's actually a blessing like, if you would posture your heart in a way that, that, that grieves, that feels that expanse, that allows that pain, that says, man, God, I'm, I'm, I'm missing out. Like, I'm missing out. Um, there's two aspects of being poor in spirit. There's one in that we see how little we are experiencing. Like, our emotions aren't lining up. We aren't... We see the lack. We're like, man, like I know I'm supposed to be walking in this kind of freedom, this kind of joy, this kind of affection for you, God. And yet, like, my emotions are not there. Like, why am I experiencing fears? Why am I experiencing depression? Why are these things happening to me, God? Like, my emotions are not there. We're experiencing less than where I, where I should be. And even just for yourself personally, but even for your ministry, the people around you, 
Every one of us has a ministry, whether it be your family or your jobs or your school. Like, you look at it and you're like, man, I'm, I'm not experiencing, like, I'm not able to influence them the way that I should. Like, I'm not strong enough to change them. Like, there's a poverty of spirit saying, like, man, like, no matter how, how eloquent I am, no matter how much I argue, no matter how much I, I push or, or, or love or do, no matter how pretty I am or how, you know, whatever it may be, to try to turn the hearts of people around me towards Christ, like, I, I can't do it. There is a poverty of spirit, of how little we're experiencing. It's like beating against a brick wall. And God, God, you promised this. Like you said, like you wanted us to be a light in the world, and I can't do it. And so then we seek Him. You say, God, we need something outside of us. Like we need something more powerful than us. Um. And so we basically, we say to God, like, God, God, like, I, for myself and for my family and for, for my, my, my work and my life, my job, my school, God, I want more. And God replies, good. I want more. And we say, God, I want more of your manifest presence in my emotions. I want more of your, your presence and you transforming me. And God says, good, good. I want more of you seeking me. And our seeking is so weak and so fragile, but God gives like a hundred times more. Like when we just turn our gaze, like we're not even doing anything, we just turn our gaze and we seek. Like God's like, good. And he lavishes a hundred times more than we deserve. Being poor in spirit. I... I always tremble at that Bible verse um, that narrow, like broad is the, the gate, wide is the path of those who go to destruction, but narrow is the gate and, and narrow is the path. You can't just get through the gate, but the path itself is actually super narrow, like to life. And that just sends a trembling in my spirit. Uh, like, it sends that spirit of poverty in my spirit. I'm just like, man, God, I need to. Like, I can't walk this. And But if we see our lack and it doesn't move us to action, like, then it's just bad emotions. This is all it is. Like, that, it's passivity. If we see our lack and we're just like, eh, like, then it's passivity. Then it's permission for licentiousness. It's permission for, for the lukewarm life. And if we see our lack, and then we're, when we don't see our lack, and we think we're doing great, then that's pride. But if we see our lack, and then we position our heart in poverty before the Lord, and we ask, then that is being poor in spirit. Um, I had the uh, privilege of traveling to the two poorest nations in the world. Does anyone know who they are? Poorest nations in the world. Haiti is one of them. Mozambique. Good. Haiti and Mozambique are the two poorest countries in the entire world. Uh, and um, 
it wasn't like I was trying to find the poorest countries in the world. It just so happened that I did mission trips in both. And um, if you ever go to Haiti, the moment, and in Mozambique, the moment you get off the airport, you are swarmed. You are swarmed by a sea of people just trying to get something from you. Like they hop onto your cart, they, they if you're not careful, they'll, they'll, their hand will be in your pocket. Like from the moment you step out of that airport, like even when, as you're driving down the road and you're thinking everything's okay, there, there they come running alongside of you, trying to hop onto your car and, and, and get something from you. Right? Um, Haiti and Mozambique. Like I, I so much saw like that, that it was such an issue that you have to live if you're a missionary in a gated community, right? And then people actually tell you in that gated community, please don't just randomly give stuff to the people anymore. Give it to the missions so that the mission can distribute it rightly because otherwise you're just causing a great amount of havoc as you uh, just throw out stuff to the crowd. Um, but I say that because like that picture of poverty, like it's a sad thing in the natural but God says that's a blessed thing. If you would carry that posture before the Lord. Yeah. That God, he is not building gated communities against us and the poor in spirit. That he welcomes and says, hey, is there anyone poor and needy, anyone hungry and thirsty, anyone come to me? That he says, you are wretched and you are blind. You don't realize how poor you are. Come to me. And, and the trouble is not God's willingness to give, but that we, we are far removed in our spirit from those who, who manifest that as poverty in, in places like Haiti and Mozambique. It is uh, especially hard, I want to say, um, in, in the United States. Uh, I, I was actually thinking about this. Um, <laughs> I was actually thinking about this this morning, and I was, I was actually like a little nervous to give this sermon because I was like, God, like this is like this is like if I try to preach, you know, if I went to like a fat people pride convention, like we're proud to be fat people, and I talked about you know like sermon on fasting, right? <laughs> Like, it's just like, it's going to be really hard, God. And, and even like, as I was like studying this, I was like, I don't even know if I get it. I don't, because I am part of the rich. Like I am so inundated in the culture of wealth and, and prosperity that I do not know how to posture my heart in poverty. And God, I think I missed it. I'm sorry. I was crying all this week because I felt like I missed it. I felt like I was so rich and I had walked so long in just feeling like I'm good enough and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing well in my Christian walk and I realized, oh my gosh, I haven't felt poor. I haven't felt poor in ages. And, and we're not encouraged to feel poor. We're not encouraged, you know, even in, in um, Western Christianity to, uh, Oh, I see some you pulling up the napkins. <laughs> I'm okay, I'm okay, I have some here. Um, <laughs> but, but it is something that, that we're more about, let's feel good about ourselves. Yeah. 
something that is so encouraged in our world today, to feel good about ourselves and, and not to position ourselves where we feel like we are poor and we are in great need. And um, but God says, blessed, blessed are those who, happy are you, vibrant in heart, alive on the inner man, in this secret place when no one's watching, so alive you will feel if you would posture your heart in poverty before me. And poverty, it, it takes cultivation. It's not a one-time like, oh, okay, I was poor that one day three years ago and I'm good. Like it is a regular cultivation in our lives to maintain that posture of poverty. It's challenging. Some, I, I mean, I heard someone say this too and I totally agree that it is probably the most challenging of all the Beatitudes. More challenging than forgiving those who were bitter to you or who hurt you more, more difficult than being persecuted is this daily cultivating in your heart of being poor before the Lord. Um, but if we do it, happy are we. If we do it, it creates a sense of urgency in our spirit to keep reaching for God, to keep reaching for God. And if we do it, if we do this first beatitude, the rest will, will, will be easier to produce afterwards. Um, you know, uh, when, people, uh, when people go out to start a ministry, you know, I hear it pretty often, like, I'm going to start a church, or I'm going to start, you know, uh, a different ministry, and it's like, yes, good. And the thing that, that, um, that goes through my mind sometimes isn't so much like, you know, are they super capable? Like, are they super good looking and really good at talking that they could draw and attract people? Like, those are all good things. They're not bad. But when the people are gathered, when the thing starts rolling, like, the question is, do, does that person have the grace to regularly cultivate being poor in spirit? And will they impart that to the people that they bring together? Because many people... You know, we many of us have experiences with like, especially when we're young. There's this this excitement and this yearning and this reaching for God, and uh, and then we gather people around us and we're like, let's reach for God, let's reach for God, and then and then after years or sometimes weeks, months, you know, whatever it may be, um, life happens and we lose it. We lose that first love that we used to have. And then we find ourselves still doing ministry, right? But now it's, it's, it's with a, if we're honest, it's with a colder heart. It's with um, no longer a vibrant spirit, but the programs have been set up. The people are still here and we've lost, we've lost something so important and valuable. We've lost that poverty of spirit, that, that urgency, that sense of, of needing to reach for God. And so the fire of the Holy Spirit, like we're always talking about, God, I want the fire of the Holy Spirit. The fire of the Holy Spirit, it, it's not, it's not big personality. Like sometimes we mistake that. We go to conferences and we're like, man, that person was so fiery for the Holy Spirit and so full of the Holy Spirit. And actually, like they were just really good at talking and pretty loud. Like, you know? And, uh, 
I, I remember that one time, I was like, I listened to the speaker, and he was so fiery and so powerful. I was like, this man's an amazing man of God. And then uh, we were eating dinner afterwards, and he was talking about pooping in a toilet, and it was still as amazing. Like, like it, was, it was still as captivating. Everyone was still like, oh my gosh, this is the best story ever. And like, it was just, it wasn't that his message wasn't real and powerful from the Lord. It was just a realization like, oh my gosh. The fire of the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as big personality. The fire of the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as hype and sensationalism. You know, like going to a place, and, like should we raise our hand in worship? Absolutely. Should we, you know, give God full devoted, you know, affection and adoration or worship? Absolutely. But do not mistake that as the fire of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this guy famously said it, he said, you know, I don't care how high they jump during worship. As, as long as when they finally land, they're walking straight with Jesus. Amen. Right? The fire of the Holy Spirit is not sensational. Those are, those are human dynamics. They're not bad. Because that's not how you measure. That's not the litmus test. The, how you measure the fire of the Holy Spirit is the vibrant heart where there's this hidden conversation between God and that person. And it produces a zeal to walk out the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a zeal that they carry, and it's a zeal that those that they bring around them will also carry. Can you cultivate this urgency in your spirit and not wear out? Can you motivate others to do it? To keep, if, if you would keep poverty of spirit as the central part of your ministry, whether your ministry be your family or your work or even just, you know, something in a Christian dynamic, like if you can keep spirit of poverty as the central foundation of it, it's going to be different. It's going to be different. Um, that's my prayer for us, like even in this series. You know, Vic was mentioning to me the other day that there's like a lot of newcomers, praise the Lord, and it's awesome, and hallelujah, praise the Lord. But the greater sense of urgency and this, the trepidation is not in my own heart is God. Like, like, could you please help us to walk out certain out? Like, would you please make us a people who are poor before you? Who really, even if it doesn't matter if it's five people in the room or 5,000 people in the room, oh, would you not let us be a compromised people who think we're too rich, who think we're good enough? It's such a temptation because we are, um, it's such a rich country. Uh, I'll, I'll end with this. Oh, wait. And with two things. How do we cultivate being poor in the spirit? How do we do it? One is we become aware of what God wants to give. We become aware of what God wants to give. We constantly set it before us. You know, um, by the word of God, by reading his word, by knowing that God, this is what you offer. But also, even the testimony of the saints, testimonies of people around you, but I know when I read testimonies of what God has done with people who are no different than me, like in the past, those revivalists, those people, I remember 
reading about a, a martyr in Rome, um, um, and she was around my age, and how how joyful she was to go into the Colosseum. Like she was, she came out there like almost like a rooster, just super excited, like just super like like confident and, and feeling the honor of being able to suffer for Christ. Um, she's going to be torn apart by by wild uh, beasts in front of thousands of people. And I was just thinking, like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm like that's. You could do that in her. Like, why am I over here? Like, in my heart, Pasha, why am I over here? Like, why is she over there? Why am I over here? What did you do with her that you're not doing in me yet? And God, give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. Like, there's people in Haiti and Mozambique. I'm going to jump on your car. I'm going to, like, stick my hand in your pocket. God, give it to me. Give it to me. The promises, the fullness of, of experiencing your fullness and your, your presence in my life. Um. But being convicted by the testimony, being convicted by the word of God, taking it and always setting it before us, what God desires um, in prayer. Um, but what I wanted to end in uh, was this church of Laodicea. And I'll just read it here from Revelation 3, 16 through 21. It says, uh, Jesus says, this, you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. Oh, come again, it's been okay. Um, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I'm rich. I have become wealthy and in need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. As many as I love, I will be zealous and repent. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And what was happening with the church in Laodicea at the time was Laodicea was prospering. The people were coming to church. The uh, money was rolling in. The programs were looking awesome. People were coming, you know, and saying, like, everyone's doing a great job. This is amazing. This is as good as it gets. The governor of the city, you know, coming into the, the church and asking for advice or help. Like, everything was going great. And um, and God wasn't like, you know, I, I despise you. God wasn't like, his, his heart wasn't like, ah. Spit you out and cast you out. That wasn't God's heart because He says, "As many as I love, like God said, I love them." And so I, I think what He was saying to the Church of Laodicea was, "Like your lack of dedication to me, your lack of responsiveness to me, your lack of responsiveness to me, like it, it makes my stomach hurt." Like, that's what God is saying. I love you so much. And your lack of response to me as I reach out to you, it hurts. It makes my stomach sick. I've, made, I've given so much to you. I've I made so much available to you. But your passivity, your passivity, it hurts. It makes me feel sick to my stomach. And I just think about my own life and just the, the illusion of prosperity. God calls it the deceitfulness of riches that sometimes we can mistake uh, with the cares of this world. Like, you know, the fact that we have great education, that we have, you know, even a, a growing ministry or we have a good income, we have great 
friends and family around us, like we mistake that and we miscalculate. God's saying, you have, have um, you don't realize, you have come to a wrong conclusion about your spiritual state because of the blessings that I've given you. And, and the problem with the church of Laodicea and the problem with the church in the West is that we do not cultivate being poor in spirit. There was um, a famous pastor, he was actually a Baptist pastor, and uh, he, uh, he was dying uh, in the ICU. And as his tubes were being attached to him, and um, his spirit had already left, um, and his wife was there talking with the doctor. The doctor was saying he's not gonna make it, he's, he's pretty much dead. This Baptist pastor said that when he was dying, um, he actually went up to heaven and he actually saw Jesus. And Jesus said to him, I'm gonna send you back. I'm gonna send you back with a message for the Western church. Tell them that they are mostly the church of Laodicea. Not that there isn't some churches that are, are vibrant and alive in the Holy Spirit, but the church in the West that you have We've become so, um, uh, we've allowed the deceitfulness of riches to help us, to, to cause us to miss how poor we are. And so Jesus told him, like, go back, I'm going to send you back because you are, because the church in the West is the church of Laodicea. Tell them that. Tell them that so that they would turn. And then the shocking thing was, this guy was like, okay. And then Jesus looks straight at him in the eye, and he goes, you too. And this guy was shocked, because he does orphan ministries, he does like tons of stuff, you know, and it was just this moment like, oh my gosh. The, uh, yeah, you can go up and, and if you wanted to go, but, um, I think that's a message from my own heart for us as a ministry in the United States of America and such blessedness that the Lord has given us that we would not be like those, uh, the soil that God plants the word and it grows but it gets choked out by thorns, by the cares of this world, by the deceitfulness of riches. And so we're going to take some time to pray. We're going to take a little bit of time to do pastor's corner and then we're going to pray so this is something new that we're trying that's why i forgot um but uh we wanted to just take a little time to give <laughs> my mom uh just a moment to uh to have some commentaries and then we're going to go into prayer And this sprung from just the realization that a lot of us are young, and so we really don't, haven't really walked it out as long, and we really need uh, people who have walked it out for decades uh, to have their thoughts thrown in. So, okay, go ahead, Jason. Uh, thanks, thanks, Jen. Thank you for um, challenging us with that, that message, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And yeah, I know, I know many of you are struck, um, as I'm struck that you know, how I don't realize my own poverty. I don't realize my own need. And uh, so, Mom, I was just asking, um, you know, 
Chad mentioned, um, living in America, sometimes since we're rich and physically rich, um, it's easy for us to think that we're spiritually doing well in the setting of being physically rich. Um, and uh, I, I know for you, you've told me so many stories about growing up in Taiwan and being like dirt poor and just like, you know, I think even last week was telling me like living like 10 people in two rooms, you know, like all your brothers and sisters like sleeping on top of each other and then like nine people, nine people, all right, almost 10. Or like, uh, you know, eating uh, your favorite meal was just uh, rice and soy sauce, you know, <laughs> and just, uh, so I, I think, and some oil. Oh, okay, it got a little bit of oil in there too. Okay, so, um, and I think for us, since we're so, you know, we're here in America, we're blessed, we're so blessed, um, it's hard for us to keep that spiritual mentality that we're actually spiritually poor, we're physically rich. Um, and uh, I think even this past couple weeks, thinking about Afghanistan, and we've been praying the church in Afghanistan every Wednesday, uh, lifting up people in our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are in great need. And there's nothing physically like that we can offer them, you know, uh, other than prayer. So clearly seeing their spiritual poverty needs, clearly seeing it. Um, how do we, um, how have you seen here, having lived both in physical poverty and in physical richness uh, and blessing, how, what are the best ways to continue to cultivate a spirit of poverty in the setting of physical richness? I remember when we were in the in the Haiti, and uh, you know people, all the ch children, all oh, us, so many of them, 40, 50, you know, all the street, all the people, all of us, and uh, always say Ugangu, Ugangu, because uh, they cannot speak English, and so they always say their words. Ugangu means uh, hungry, hungry. Hungry, and uh, here, yes, we, we have, we, we don't experience much hungry, do we? Because we always have a breakfast, lunch, dinner, three. You all, all maybe two meal, you know, lunch. Some people like him in the morning. He doesn't. He was just only fifteen minutes to get to get up and get ready and jump into car. So he only have fifteen minutes. He doesn't take breakfast, but then he still have lunch and dinner, you know. And uh, <clears throat> we have a um, so for us to experience the hungry is uh, not not much of time. And once we are hungry, we can just open the refrigerator and get things right away. You know. But yeah, for us to 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 have a hungry heart, we really need to remember. I would think for me, uh, to remember for me, I physically hard like 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 when. When he throw, when my children throw things away, like wow, a piece of, of a chicken breast, and he says, I don't want to eat and throw away. Then I was like, no, don't throw these things away. There are people who are hungry, you know. And then I think about when 
If I were back in Taiwan, I would be so happy to have that piece of art. So, I I think that it's just a for to 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 really appreciate what you have and now, and to be able to always be feel hungry about you, but you 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 to deserve and to appreciate what you have. You really have to always think back. Think back about uh, where are you from and also knowing that uh, how much we need it. I was just telling my 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 son that next to me Johnny. I was saying poor in spirit actually is you feel you're you're hungry, you need it. You you that that means that you don't have enough. When you feel you don't have enough, you will not be proud. And you will be the most in in, in Chinese the uh, the words of poem in spirit in, translate into humbleness. Actually, if you can uh, the humbleness that if you feel that you don't have enough, then you are humble. Like those Ugangu, uh, the those uh, uh, kids, they don't have enough, so they want it. They likewise. They want it. They don't care how 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 you look at how you look at as long as you you have some money or something in your pocket, mm, you you dress more like better than them. They just don't care about how they look, how they how they so humiliate themselves. They just they smile to you and whatever they, they they just want it. You know they humble themselves. They try their way of of get my attention and get get the money for me. Or to get a food for me, you know they, they try their best. Follow me, running after me, and and always look at me and always smile at me. You know they they, they try no matter what. They make they make me feel like, are we doing that? Are we are we are we try very hard to get close to God, to get His attention, to get His to see Him, to get Him look at us. Are we doing that? And, uh, uh, and I remember the Je in Jericho, that in the Bible it says that there was a, a person who was blind or something, and he was shouting to Jesus. Shouting to Jesus. He said, uh, "Yeah, Son of David, have mercy on us." Yeah. And uh, his disciples said, "Don't, don't, don't shout so loud." Yeah, he doesn't care. He says, oh, "God." Uh, oh, David, have mercy on me. Oh, we have that kind of heart. Oh, we just uh, don't want, yeah, mm, don't want people to 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 think. Ah, uh, we in, in in if he did that in China, in America, the people would say, well, he he has no manner and he has uh, <laughs> no dignity and uh, the person is if he's in our church, you know, he say. Wow, the person is so crazy. You know, I don't want to sit with him. <laughs> Are we really do have that kind of heart today? No matter how people look at us, I just want Jesus. I just want Jesus. Yeah. And they, they require humbleness and they don't don't think about us. They require that you don't think about yourself and you don't think about the others. You only think about God. You only want God. You come to church, just only God. You don't 
do not, is there, do not care about how other people. And I myself sometimes fall into I look at others. But actually, we come to church, come to his, his temple. We should pay attention to God more than pay attention to ourselves, to others. And then we know, we, can, we should know that we really need, we really need God. Not just singing that, I need you every hour. No, not just singing, but really from our heart, sing out. Not just the lip, I need you, I need you. And because everything is from God. And our, our good outside of yeah, yeah. I don't know if I answer right or not. <laughs> anyway, that's how I feel. No, that's really good. Thank you. Thank you. And just one last question. So, taking it one step further, in, in Revelation, um, that verse for the church of Laodicea, God says, you know, in those that He loves, he, he disciplines. He reminds us sometimes that we're poor. If we don't remind ourselves that He will, it's sometimes His grace that He allows us to suffer um, to remind us of our poverty. I remember, um, and even as Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, know that you're poor and naked. I remember he had a dream once in the midst of, in the midst of a really you know, tough season in the last about a few months. You had a dream where um, there was a car accident in the snowstorm, and you saw me rushing out to try to um, you know, save dad who's in the car. And, but you saw me rushing out in the snowstorm in like flip-flops and a t-shirt. You know, I was like basically naked running out into the snowstorm. And it's so true that like in the midst of a very difficult suffering, we're not realizing that, boy, I was not prepared. My faith is not strong. I was spiritually poor. Um, and, uh, and in that verse, you know, Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, you know, I love you, and so I'm going to shake you. You know, I, I discipline those. It's who I love to discipline um, those. And then Paul writes about in suffering, rejoicing, having joy. I remember he would always say to me, you know, do you have joy? You know, in the midst of suffering, do you have joy? Like, how? What is the root of that that, that joy that you have in the midst of suffering? When God reminds us how how poor in spirit we are, how do you how do you rejoice in the midst of the suffering? To have a joy, I think that you know, because the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We really need strength. And so we really need the joy from God. And to be able to get joy from God, you've got to look at God, not look at people. Look at the circumstances or any... You cannot get it from this world. The joy of the world is only from God. The, the peace and the joy that are given to you is not from the world given. Yeah. And uh, they also the same thing that like we needed to have a, to look at God. I remember when I was in Taiwan, our church, during the weekday has three meetings. Sunday, of course, Sunday is a Sunday morning and Sunday night, there's two. But in, during the day, during the weekday, we have three meetings, three nights. One is a Bible study, one is a testimony, one is a prayer meeting. Right now, most people have the you know, some people just have one Bible study. Some church have it. two Bible study and a prayer meeting. Very seldom have three that have a testimony meeting. Yeah, because uh, I, I really like that testimony meeting. <laughs> because uh, 
that you listen to the what God has done for you, and is always so happy and always thankful. You know, not just the like prayer meeting. We also ask, ask, right? But and Bible we listen. But the the the, the, the testimony nice. Oh, enjoy, enjoy, and then help happy because other people why. He got healed. He can walk. Oh, you know, or, or something like that. What? Just a thankful, and then and also it, it encourage you to have a hope. And when you have that kind of hope, faith, hope, love, you know, then you have the the knowing that God loves you, knowing that God's your hope, you know, everything. God loves you so much. He will make things right for you. Uh, as long as you love your God close to you, you make things uh, uh, and just have that face. Uh, it it, 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 it turned the whole thing out in the country, the, the church. So our church is always very happy. And yeah, the, the, you look at uh, uh, there, there is one song that we like to sing so much. It's uh, Shall ye shall run me the nation she just let in and make your face uh, raised. <laughs> Uh, you need to pen your also. So that, that's song we our church is so many of them like to sing because we we like to laugh and to to have joy. That is our strength. They for face they help us to face every day uh, all the trials and temptation and all that. So look at God and uh, always like what it was on the on the screen. God's words testimony. Prayer. That's how you get close to the Lord, and that's a, that's the way to be able to get out of, the, be able to uh, to get the blessing, happiness, joy from God. Thank you. I think that's really good. Connecting joy is a response to Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving we can only be thankful if we know the value of what we receive. We can only know the value of what we received if we know how much we need it and how important it is. So that's really Thank you. Good job, Mommy. All right, we're going to uh, transition to communion. So uh, we're going to have Joseph actually come up and do communion for us <laughs> really quick. And that, that'll be our response. It's communion time to come before the Lord. Sunday of the month, as we gather together as a body here, faith of love, let's just take a moment um, to take communion together, to share together in communion. Um, if you guys have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll read from what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth regarding gathering together as a body for communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11.23 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So as we get ready to take communion, we'll have um, everybody come up and, and receive the, the body and the blood and take it back to your seats. And then we're going to pray together um, as a community. We're going to pray together as a body. We're going to lift up these things in communion. So first of all, as Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians, you know, the, the, he rebukes the Corinthians for taking communion or taking and eating only thinking of themselves, not as a body. And so as we pray together, uh, we're going to think about the community. We're going to think about our believers, um, other believers in our body, um, especially those who are sick and those who have need. And so um, even as you get ready to come up and take the body and blood, let the Holy Spirit highlight one or two names in your heart of people, um, other brothers and sisters and believers who have needs to pray for. Um, and then also Thanksgiving, we're going to remember um, to give thanks, even as we were just talking about recognizing the goodness of the Lord, those testimonies. Jesus in our life. Think, let the Holy Spirit highlight that. And when's the last time you give thanks to Jesus, identifying those things, that the good things that we have um, that are from God. Let's cultivate that heart of thanksgiving. Third part of communion, remembrance. As Paul says here, we do communion unto remembering what Jesus did for us. Um, remembering that, he, that the sacrifice on the cross. And so as you do that, the Holy Spirit highlight that remembrance. Um, and then that anticipation in verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Communion is a remembrance unto Jesus' anticipation, that excitement that Jesus is coming back as we take communion together. And then lastly, repentance and transformation. Paul ends this part to the Corinthians, exhorting them to not take communion in an unworthy manner, but to do it in a worthy manner, remembering as we remember what Jesus did and anticipate him come back. It should cause our hearts to grieve for any sin in our life. So let the Holy Spirit highlight anything that He wants to change in our heart as we come up and get communion. So whenever you're ready, please line up here, receive the body and the blood, and then take it back to your seats together, and then we'll pray together.
Jesus, we just thank you for the body of believers. We thank you for our community. We thank you for every single brother and sister. And we especially lift up those who are not with us here today, those who are sick. Lord, would you just heal them? Holy Spirit, would you touch them with your healing power? Those in need of your healing touch in the body of the community here in the church in Columbus. We especially lift up Ian to you, Lord, who is sick. Even right now, would you just give him relief um, from his discomfort, release from fever? Heal him in the name of Jesus. We lift up those who are sick. We lift up Katie's mom to you. We rebuke cancer in the name of Jesus. For Pastor Michael Gray, for his mother, Jesus, would you heal her of her cancer? Would you intervene? Would you comfort his heart and bring him peace? We ask you in the name of Jesus. For Glenn's daughter in the hospital with diabetes, we ask you for a healing touch of the Spirit. For RJ's leg or his knee, full recovery in the name of Jesus. Every single person, Lord, would you even across this room just highlight in our hearts names, people that you want us to pray for, those we have not seen, those who are not with us in the midst um, here, those who are struggling with depression or loneliness, Jesus, would you meet them? We lift them up to you, Jesus. We remember them. Would you draw them um, in love and draw them back to you? Next, we give thanksgiving. God, we thank you for all that we have from you. We give you all the thanks, all the praise physical health, even as we've been talking about, this uh, physical wealth, the comforts that you've given us, that you've surrounded with us here in this country, we say that it's only by your hand. We give you all the thanks and praise and help us to cultivate that heart that is spiritually poor to remember that even though you have physically blessed us, we are spiritually so in need. And it's all from your hands. We ask you to remind us continually of this. We give you all the thanks and praise for and Jesus, we say we remember. We remember your sacrifice on the cross. As we take this body and blood, we remember that it truly was your blood shed on that cross. It's truly your physical body broken for us. We thank you for that sacrifice on the cross. We say we remember. We say we remember. We will not forget. We love you. We anticipate your return. That it stirs our hearts to yearn for you. We say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. We cannot wait for you to return. We say we love you. Come. Spirit of pride, say come. And lastly, we say we repent. Say that heavy sacrifice that you made on the cross, uh, you would help us not to treat it, uh, uh, treat it like that you would highlight in our hearts. You would highlight sin in our hearts. We say, Holy Spirit, we say, yes, we say, reveal it to us. We say we surrender any areas of our heart that are not given to you. Would you reveal it to us? We say we are spiritually blind. Not see our own sin sometimes. So, Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us areas in our heart, in our heart that we have not surrendered to you? We repent right now. Help us to live and become more like you. And even as we eat this body and drink this blood, would you transform us to become more like you, Jesus? Amen. On the same night in which he was betrayed, Lord Jesus took the bread. When he had given him thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the body together.